Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Can I tell the story about us at uh, the grocery store when you thought you saw your dad? (laughs) This this man walks by, looks remarkably like Kat's dad. Mm -hmm. um, And she goes, wow, that looks like my dad. Oh, that's not my dad. He's wearing a Vietnam veteran's ball cap. And also my dad's dad. That was not the first thing that came to your mind. No. It was the ball cap that tipped you off. Yeah, my dad wasn't a veteran. He, <laughs> he did have ball caps, though. Many. Yeah, yep. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he even had one of those ball cap hanging closet accessories so that all of his ball caps could be neatly organized on them. Well, he was just smart. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, but that's the thing that I, uh, one of the things I love the most about you is how your brain works. <laughs> you were watching the uh, Great British Baking Show again mm-hmm. on Netflix and uh, somebody had made a, a cake that looked like a snake and they cut into it to taste it and you went, oh, oh wait, no, that's a cake. <laughs> You're watching a baking show, and you you have these empathy feelings for the cake. I love that. Oh, you're just a, you're adorable. It was a very lifelike cake, <laughs> and apparently a delicious sponge. Oh, the sponge! Yeah. <sighs> Are you sick of that show yet? By the way, you've been binging that for weeks now. Hardcore. Yeah. No, I just sit there with you and read. It's fine. One of the things I like about British competition shows is 
how much more polite they are than we are in the Aren't U.S. They sweet to each other. They, they really are. It's refreshing. Over in the U.S., uh, reality shows border on murder in many cases. <laughs> right. If somebody loses, then they get really angry at the judges, and you can tell that they probably are going to flatten their tires. Right, yeah. Plus, it's inspired me, and I made dinner rolls for Thanksgiving, and they came out really weird. They were delicious. They were not weird. They were weird. Well, they were weirdly delicious. <laughs> I'll give you that. They were so sweet and refused to get fluffy. But then again, there were like three ingredients that we didn't have exactly that thing, so I just substituted the nearest <laughs> kitchen yeah. item I could find. So. Yep, yep. And the yeast had expired three years ago. Right. That you okay. found in the cupboard. Yeah. yeah. So according to one of our uh, freaks, they sent us a message just to remind us that you go first this episode. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I need in my life. (laughs) I just need an assistant to help me through the very basic steps of my existence. So what do you have? Okay, let's just let I'm just going to launch into it. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Strap yourself in. In March 1932, the mysterious resident from Sweet 552 at the Herald Square Hotel in New York City reached out to the rest of the world. It was Ida Wood crying for help as her sister was dying, and it was the first time that she had voluntarily opened the door to her hotel suite in 24 years. Whoa. Let's get into this. Ida Wood moved to New York City in 1857 at the age of 19, and she had set her sights on 37-year-old Benjamin Wood. He was the brother of the current New York mayor, Fernando Wood, and also, by the way, a married man. Uh Having never met Benjamin Wood before, um, she sent him a letter um, to introduce herself and suggest that they hang out sometime. I see. Netflix and chill? Something like that. The letter goes uh, like this. Mr. Wood, sir, having heard of you often, I venture to address you from hearing a young lady, one of your former loves, speak of you. She says you are fond of, quote, new faces. I fancy that as I am new in the city and affairs decor, don't know what that means, that I might contract an agreeable intimacy with you. Ooh. Of as long a duration as you see fit. Wow, that is, that's pretty forward. Right? Espe- I mean, by any day standard, but back then? I know. I believe that I am not extremely bad looking, nor disagreeable. Perhaps not quite as handsome as the lady with you at present, but I know a little more. And oh. there is an old saying, knowledge is power. If you would wish an interview, address a letter to P.O. New York stating what time we may meet. And thus began their relationship. My, my, my. Ida told Benjamin that she was the daughter of a wealthy Louisiana sugar planter, Henry Mayfield, and Anne Mary Crawford, which is a very prestigious earldom in Great Britain. Benjamin owned the New York Daily Paper, and being the brother of the mayor, he was a, he was a fancy pants. He was a man of means. He was a man about town as well. And Ida was welcomed at many soirees and balls as his date during the 10 years that they saw each other while he was married. Oh my. Right? So he took her like out to parties and events, social things with other socialites. 
Wow. She wore expensive, dazzling jewelry. She met Abraham Lincoln and uh, Samuel Tilden. She danced with Edward, the Prince of Wales. During this time, Benjamin Wood was elected as a Democrat to the 37th and 38th United States Congresses. He was a member of the New York State Senate and elected to the 47th United States Congress. He was coming up in the world. And in 1867, Benjamin Wood's wife died. So he immediately married Ida, and uh, together they had a daughter named Emma. And it was kind of weird because no one really noticed that Emma was 10. And um, at the time of their wedding, <laughs> wow. Ida maintained that they had secretly wed 10 years oh, prior in a did. private ceremony. While he was still married. Right. Uh-huh. And that their 1867 wedding was just a vowel renewal. So Benjamin Wood um, had a really good income, and he was a generous philanthropist, but he also had some money issues and a pretty intense gambling issue. Ida was cool with this. She said that she wouldn't interfere with his gambling as long as every time he lost, he paid her. (laughs) And I love this woman. When he won, he was to give her half of his winnings. Okay. So either way, she wins. Mm Mm-hmm. She, she was the better of the two gamblers. <laughs> she, she was playing the house odds. So she was keeping their money safe. And when he didn't have cash, Benjamin would ask her for money that he had given her previously. Mm-hmm. And she would agree to give him that money if he put more of the Benjamin's property under her name. <laughs> so she was basically buying his stuff with his money. She was playing Monopoly. <laughs> Before Monopoly. I mean, they're married, of course, so it's all shared goods. But um, the way that she's handling the money and and accruing it in her name is quite remarkable. She also started buying from him controlling interests in his newspaper. So when he needed money for gambling, she would say, okay, fine, but I need such and such shares in the paper. And eventually, and eventually she grew uh, to have quite an interest in the newspaper and was writing for it. Then uh, she became one of the first female publishers in the newspaper industry because she just took over. How many years did that take? For her to accomplish this. Well, Benjamin Wood died in 1900. So um, they were married in 67. So, I mean, this whole process was over the course of like 20 something years. Okay. By the time that he died, almost everything was in Ida's name. And actually, there was a newspaper uh, article about his death and how he died with very little to his name, which was entirely accurate because it was all in Ida's name at that point. But they were (laughs) married. So, I mean, that was kind of a shit show right there. I mean, that article was, first of all, unnecessary. And I don't. But anyway, that's just punch the microphone. So. Everything's in Ida's name. And in 1901, a year later, she sold the newspaper. Uh, She took the money and she traveled. She bought jewelry, expensive clothes. She really experienced the world. But in 1907, really coming into a scary time uh, as far as national financial business. Right. And she had talked with a couple of friends who had uh, shared their fears about the current state 
of the nation and and banks. Uh, so, you know, they were taking their money out of the banks and she was listening to this and she was always so protective of her money. And as she's getting older, she's becoming more and more paranoid about her possessions. So as her mental state began to deteriorate, she became panicked with this financial situation. So she sold all of her real estate. She closed her bank account, taking out nearly $1 million. And she, her sister, and her daughter, Emma, took to a two-room suite at the Herald Square Hotel, room 552. She had very little contact with anyone, even hotel employees. Maids were not allowed to come in and clean the room. Um, when they needed fresh sheets or towels, they were handed through the crack in the door. They they didn't let anyone in. Did, did she ever leave? No. She stayed in there for how many years? That's what we're getting to. Oh, my God. She requested uh, groceries be delivered to her. Occasional requests of evaporated milk, crackers, coffee, bacon, eggs. They, they didn't ask for food outside of that, except for occasionally they would request fish be brought to the suite. Um, Copenhagen snuff occasionally, and every once in a while a Havana cigar. Oh my goodness. So um, this this really, as far as the maids and the bellhop reported, uh, were the only things that they ever requested. Now, were these food items cooked or did they actually cook in the hotel room? They cooked in the hotel room. They had made a makeshift um, kitchenette in the small bathroom. My goodness. The bellhop claimed that each time he received a tip of 10 cents from Ida, uh, she would tell him that this was the last thing that she had to give him. And, Mm. you know, she was very sorry, but she, this was, this is all that she had. In 1928, Emma, the daughter, became very ill and had to go to the hospital and she died at the age of 71. Oh my goodness. A few years later, in 1931, that's 24 years after they moved into the suite, hotel employees heard Ida crying for help. Her sister Mary was ill, but it was too late. Mary had died. And so when the hotel manager and a undertaker and a doctor came into the room, it was the first time that their lives were exposed to the public. In 24 years. In 24 years. She had not been outside her hotel room for 24 years. And there's some mixed reports about that. She may have gone to the hospital when Emma got sick, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really see anything that confirmed that. And that was only mentioned in one of the articles that I read. So it's unclear. But uh, overall, I mean, even one outing in 24 years is... It's incredible. Yeah. The hotel manager before that point, he had been the hotel manager for seven years and he had never seen Ida or her deceased sister and they always paid their bills in cash. So the people that came into this room at this point were were just blown away at the state of the, the hotel suite. Tell me all about it. It was crammed with piles of yellowed newspapers, several large trunks. They had made, as I mentioned, the kitchenette in the little bathroom, hundreds of cracker boxes, stacks of old wrapping paper. People began passing in and out of the rooms, looking around and digging through the piles of trash hoarded all over. And whether... So Ida was protesting, but she was very old at this point. So there was kind of this shitty attitude that because she was old, she didn't know what she was talking about and they could just do what they wanted. Right. So that was 
that was a question I had. It, they did not have trash disposal. Right. They just kept everything there yep. for 24 years yes. in the room. Yeah. Holy crap. Yes. This is like hoarders on steroids. Right. Um, but they also, in addition to all that trash, started to find money. Thousands of dollars in $1,000 and $5,000 bills were found tucked away in shoeboxes. There were large trunks stuffed with cash and expensive fabrics, exquisite jewelry, gold certificates ranging from $1,000 to $10,000, dating back from uh, 1860, just lying around, being used as paperweights, etc. My God. A gold ebony-headed stick, uh, which was a gift from President James Monroe. Row was in the suite. A letter from Charles Dickens to Benjamin Wood uh, was just stashed away in a trunk. They found $1,000 and $5,000 bills pinned to the inside of Ida's nightgowns. That's an odd place to keep them. Right? I think the idea was even if all of her things were taken from her, she would still have it on her. Uh-huh, you know, she right. was she was smart. How old was she at this point? She was in her early 90s. Oh my goodness. And just I mean, I I feel very often that this story is told as like look at this sad old lady who, you know, was a hoarder and, you know, uh unstable and she also was a beast who held on to her shit and made sure that her family, you know, was taken care of in in the way that she could and felt right. safe doing it. And sure. she wasn't There were no offshore accounts back then that right. you couldn't you couldn't hide your money in the Caymans. And as she is proven correct, she didn't know that she could trust people. Um and this became a real problem as soon as everyone started coming into this hotel room. So it's the midst of the Great Depression, and people are coming out of the woodwork. Um, Her relatives, Benjamin's relatives, Benjamin's kids from his previous marriages, their lawyers all battled to gain control of her wealth. And in September of that same year, she was declared incompetent and moved to a different hotel room, oddly enough. Hmm. She did not want to do this. Um, She was very content with staying in the suite that she was in, but uh, for one reason or another, and it may have been because the place was disgusting, um, they decided that, no, they were moving her to a different room. and uh, In the same hotel? In the same hotel. Okay. Um, and then took over her finances. That sucks. It really does. She ended up dying just months later at the age of 93. And at that point... 1,013 claimants squabbled over the distribution of her estate. Wow. So she was right to not trust the people around her and Benjamin's family. And she had this idea that this is how she was going to keep her her money. And this is how she was going to keep her sister and her daughter and, and make sure that they survived this, this financial downturn. Downturn. So when she did die at the age of 93 as a beast, who also was a hoarder and had obviously some issues, (laughs) the truth about her also emerged. Ida Mayfield Wood was not, in fact, Ida Mayfield Wood. She was born Ellen Walsh, the daughter of poor Irish immigrants of little to no means. Oh, my. 
When she set out for New York when she was 19 years old, she went there knowing she was going to snag a man and she was going to change the, the direction of her life. She was not going to be this poor Irish immigrant anymore. She was going to be a New York socialite. She was going to get it. I love this. So she reinvented herself. She became what she wanted to become. And apparently Benjamin was into this. He knew that she wasn't who she said she was. Really? And there is paperwork to show that, you know, the name that he married was not the name that New York knew her as. And that this girl, Emma, that they had together, this daughter, was actually Ida's sister, who she brought with her and (laughs) said she was going to take care of. So her two sisters, she brought with her to New York and said, we're going to get this and we're going to get it right. And that's how they went from being this poor family who had nothing to being the most elite of these socialites and doing it exactly the way they wanted to. Now, that's not to say that their living situation wasn't problematic. But, you know, I understand wanting to you know, board yourself up in a room and and never leave. I want to do that all the time. All the time. Yeah. So I think that oftentimes people put their own feelings on this. Like, mm-hmm. well, I would want to leave that hotel room and I wouldn't like to be there. So naturally there must be something wrong with them. And, it, you know, there may have been. But I am hesitant to put those social restrictions on these women because I find what they did kind of badass. Yeah, I mean, they were con artists. No <laughs> no question about it. And I'm not dismissing that, but they were clever con artists and goddamn they were committed. Right? But Benjamin knew about it. So there's a certain amount of yeah, they conned the city and the socialite scene, but her husband, the the source of the majority of this money, right. you know, he was into it. So Con artists, yes, well, they, to a they, certain extent. When they left, they knew that they were going to go and they were going to present themselves as something they were not mm-hmm. in an attempt to gain things they do not have. Fake it until you make it. <laughs> yeah. I love these bitches. I do. I have a high degree of respect for them, I have to say. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, lying's not okay. No, no. And that was different times. Mm. And women had to do certain things in order to get what they needed. I guess. I'm just saying. Well, yeah. Obviously, parts of it are problematic, but what else? That's what I have for you. The story of Ida Mayfield Wood. uh, Badass recluse hoarder. That thing on the side? No, it's that thing in the middle. That thing in the middle, five people who are really bad at criming. (laughs) People who screwed up breaking the law. Number five. The bank robbers who called the bank in advance to make sure that they'd be open so they could rob them. They began by calling the bank to let them know that this robbery business was totally going down. I guess they were put on hold for an uncomfortable amount of time. But then he told the person on the other end that uh, if the bank didn't give them 100000 in large bills to his accomplice, who would soon be popping by to pick it up, there would be a bloodbath. Obviously, that did not work. But it was thoughtful of them to call ahead. The criminal who was caught after sending police a different photo because he didn't like his mugshot. (laughs) Number three, the guy tried to hold up a bank with a cucumber. 
I have this cucumber here, and I'm not afraid to make a salad. Number two, the bank robber who accidentally handed the teller his gun. (laughs) Hey, can you hang on to this for me? For just a second, I need to fill this slip out. And the number one guy who's bad at criming, he tries to pay a waitress with a credit card that he stole from the waitress. And here's a bonus one. A burglar tries to rob a house full of cops. I guess the idea was one guy was going to crawl through the window and then open the door for the other guy to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other guy went to open the door and come in, and his partner was detained by five police officers. Oh, man. In uniform. Was it poker night at the sergeant's house? It must have been. <laughs> the Box of Oddities with Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. There's a reason why 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other solo entrepreneurs have saved hundreds, if not thousands of hours a year using HoneyBook. And we've noticed that uh, so many of you freaks are creative types. You have um, art businesses, photography businesses, uh, your event planners. When HoneyBook approached us to sponsor the Box of Oddities, we said that's a perfect fit. So if you're frustrated by dealing with the back and forth of emails, endless paperwork, and trying to get paid, HoneyBook's for you. HoneyBook is an all-in-one business management platform for the creative small business like yours. HoneyBook makes it easy to streamline the process because you want to create, you want to do your art. You don't want to have to write invoices up and remember to send them and create proposals. HoneyBook makes that easy. Did you know this? You can even get e-signatures generate invoices, and get paid faster all within one online system. And that's why we've partnered with HoneyBook.com to offer Box of Oddities listeners 50% off the first year of HoneyBook with promo code BOX. Get started at HoneyBook.com today. Use promo code BOX for 50% off your first year. Again, that's HoneyBook.com, promo code BOX. You will love HoneyBook. HoneyBook.com. Promo code BOX for 50% off your first year. Take your creative business to the next level. 100% of our listeners surveyed say they listen to podcasts. That's a lot. This is The Box of Oddities. Hey, in case you missed our Black Plague Friday sale, good news for you. Today is Cyborg Monday from The Box of Oddities. You just go to our website, theboxofoddities.com, and our merch is, what, 30% off? It depends on what the robot decides, but that sounds right. Okay. What's the difference between a cyborg and a robot? A cyborg is part human. Okay. Like the Terminator. All right. Yeah. Okay, an android is like a lifelike Robot? Yes. And robots all like, meet. Wah, wah. <laughs> I, I guess robotics can be something as simple as a machine that puts things together. Mm-hmm. An android is more lifelike, and a cyborg is part human, part machine. Got it. Yeah. I, I believe. I could be wrong. I often am. All right. In 1903, a group of archaeologists were archaeologing in a cave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Cheddar Gorge, Somerset, in England. And they excavated a, uh, a human skull and eventually a complete skeleton of what has become known as Cheddar Man. Cheddar Man. Cheddar Man, which is my nickname during the holidays because of my love for fine pasteurized dairy product. 
All right, so I called my information from Wikipedia, the Daily Mail, the Independent. Can't find a Cheddar Man. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Cheddar Man, prehistoric male, lived about 10,000 years ago. He had a, a huge hole in his skull, which suggested a violent death. Mm. Uh, he had been buried alone in a chamber near the mouth of the deep cave about a thousand years before hunter gathering began to give way to farming. To kind of put it in perspective, it was pre agricultural. Okay. About a thousand years before. So, how many, uh, how many years would that be? Well, his skeleton is about 10,000 years old, and that was a thousand years before agriculture, so it would have made, you know, 9,000 years. That's nuts. Is when agriculture started to take hold. Now, other remains found in the exact same cave have been linked to cannibalistic rituals, trophy display, and secondary burial by prehistoric humans. Cheddar Man is thought to have died sometime in his 20s. They did, you know, some, some work on him. Uh, he had a relatively good diet. He was, he was pretty healthy with, except, with the exception of the hole in his head. And he lived in Britain when it was almost completely depopulated. During that time period, the Ice Age had, had caused the area to be lesser populated. Sure. Previous population. Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was forming a joke. It's just taking much longer than I had hoped. That's fine. I'll wait. Oh, no, no, the pressure's on. Kind of like the Hillshire Farms kiosk at the mall in January. <laughs> there had been previous populations settled in Britain long before his arrival, mm -hmm. uh, but they were all wiped out right. prior. Cheddar Man marked the start of uh, continuous habit habitation on the island. Uh, he was one of the very first modern Britons. Okay, so it was like there were people, and then there was the Ice Age, and then this he was the beginning of that repopulation yes. phase. Mm -hmm. Got it. Genetically, he was part of a group of people known as Western hunter-gatherers, Mesolithic-era individuals that uh, were traditionally from the Spain, Hungary, and Luxembourg areas. So if he were on the Great British Baking Show, mm -hmm. you know, he'd use more of like the paprikas, the more natural flavors that we would see traditionally in that region. I imagine that's exactly what he would do, drawing from personal experience. His ancestors uh, migrated to Europe from the Middle East after the Ice Age. And today, 10% of white British people are descended from this group. Wow. Scientists have reconstructed Cheddar Man's face. You know how they do that, that forensic reconstruction with the putty and stuff? It blows my mind. It's incredible, isn't it? They've done it several times using the shape of his skull and certain assumptions about the appearance of the first Britons. Sure. So the first reconstructions of his face, he looked very similar to people today. They had him with, uh, you know, white complexion, brown eyes, brown hair, typical of what you would expect. In the late 1990s, they ran uh, some, some DNA testing on it. Ooh, early 90s DNA testing. Late 90s, late 90s DNA testing. Well, I just mean DNA testing at that time was early. So they pulled out a complete DNA sample from inside one of his molars. So they had a very complete DNA uh, profile. Okay. Mind-blowing. Go ahead. So they thought, wouldn't it be fun if we did DNA testing of 
families that still live in that area. Yeah. That have been there for generations. And so that's what they did. It was part of a television series on archaeology in Somerset. So they took the DNA that was found in the pulp cavity of one of one of uh, Cheddarman's molar teeth, tested it at Oxford University's Institute of Molecular Medicine, and then compared it with that of 20 people locally whose families had been known to live in that area for some generations. Now, to make up the numbers, a history teacher who had been talking about this with his students added his DNA to the sample. His name is Adrian Target. The results came back, and there is no doubt Mr. Target, 42-year-old history teacher in Cheddar, Somerset, has was shown by DNA tests to be a direct descendant by his mother's line so cool. of Cheddar Man, the oldest complete skeleton ever found in Britain, and now the world's most distant confirmed relative. It is... Through his mother's line, one of his great bajillion great grandfathers. That is amazing. And he just happened to do it just to make up the, the numbers. As Yeah, well, and as an experiment to demonstrate for his history class. He taught high school history. Sure, that Still is does. mind-blowing. So he, that's his grandfather a million times over. 10,000 years. That's got to feel insane. I mean, it's got to feel like winning something. Yeah. Well, what are the odds? That, That's true. <laughs> well, you think you think about it for for a moment. He, he, this guy lived in a cave, mm. and then ten thousand years later, his descendant still lives in the same town, not in a cave, but in the town where the cave is in Cheddar. Wow. Ten thousand years. I mean, get out, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course, that was a big surprise to everybody. Sure. Uh, Mr. Taggett's wife, Catherine, said, this is all a bit of a surprise, but maybe it explains why he likes steaks so rare. <laughs> oh, my God. I love her. <laughs> Target says, I'm absolutely overwhelmed when he heard of the match. It is very strange news to receive. I'm not sure how I feel at this moment. Now, his pupils were thrilled. Obviously. One of the 16-year-olds said with, with relish, he's never had a nickname until now. It doesn't say what his nickname is, but probably Cheddarman Jr. or something like that. So cool. Scientists were thrilled as well. The, fi the finding could provide a key to the debate about the process by which early humans settled down to an agricultural life. You know, I just can't like my mom's dad. We don't know like anything about his family, who his parents were, where he came from. And this guy, Cheddarson, knows <laughs> Who his great, 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 you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. That's a heck of a leaf to show up on your ancestry tree. That would be difficult to track. So what would you do if you were Adrian Target? Well, you'd go to the cave, wouldn't you? Obviously. He he went and he said, I'm glad I don't live down here. It's very dark and dismal. I've been down here before, but of course I never dreamed that I'd be standing in my ancestor's home. How crazy is that? Ooh. 
You know, that gives me the goosies a little. Yeah. I think about that, you know, the... What am I trying to say? I think about how intensely I feel when I have some sort of connection to a previous generation, be it, you know, let's say some people might like to collect coins uh, because they're a connection to a different time. Right. But this guy has that connection on a level that I can't even. Yeah, I know. I can't even fathom. It's mind blowing. Dr. Larry Barnum, an archaeology, an archaeology lecturer at Bristol University, said, quote, there is a debate over whether farmers arrived in Eastern Europe and ousted the hunter gatherers or whether the idea of farming spread through the population. Mm. This discovery strongly suggests an element of the second. Well, I think also just the general idea um, that we, by nature, try to incorporate good ideas from our neighbors and if we see neighbors doing smart things, we're like, hey, we can put that seed in the ground. Sure. Yeah. Fuck, let's grow some shit. <laughs> Physically, Cheddar Man would have looked a lot like modern man. You could put a suit on him and he wouldn't look out of place in an office. In fact, he probably wore tailored clothes of leather or skins that were sewn together, according to Dr. Barnum. He went on to say it's likely he was part of an extended group of families of 30 or so people. They uh, lived too late to see a woolly mammoth, but too soon to see the earliest farming. So they updated the DNA testing, like in the past year or so, because it's improved a lot in sure. the past 20 years, and they discovered some new things. Ooh. Now, Cheddarman is uh, back in the headlines because of this new DNA study. They had originally assumed that he was brown hair, White skin, dark hair. I mean, dark eyes. What they've determined is that he was of dark skin with blue eyes and dark hair. Well, that does make sense. He said that his uh, ancestors had come from the Mideast, right? Yes. So, I mean... But really dark. Dark to black skin is what they're, what they're saying. And he had bright blue. Ooh, hello. Swipe right, am I right? <laughs> Wait, I don't know. Is it the right one? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't, don't know anything I'm about not that. a Tinder guy. <laughs> uh, so they took this information and they reconstructed the face again. Mm -hmm. And uh, no one bothered to tell Adrian Target or, or any of his family that it was happening or invite him to the unveiling of the new construction, reconstruction of his ancestor at the National History Museum. <gasps> Does it look just like him? Oh, my God. It does look just like him, doesn't it? I it, want to see it. It looks remarkably like him. He said, I feel a bit multicultural now, he laughed. I can definitely see there's a family resemblance. The nose is exactly like mine. No! And we both have those blue eyes. I will show you a side-by-side -side comparison. Yes, you will. And we can post that on our social media. There definitely is a resemblance when you look across photos of my cousins, Mr. Target went on to say. The slight wave in his hair is also similar to Cheddar Man's curly locks. Though obviously I'm much more gray because, you know, he's now had an opportunity to age. There. Yeah, he's yeah. as a modern man. And he added, but then again, my ancestor did die in his 20s. 
But Cheddar Man's skin coloring marks the difference across a vast space of time. It was previously assumed that human skin tones lightened some 40,000 years ago as populations migrated north out of the harsh African sunlight Mm -hmm. where darker skin had a more protective function. Less sunny latitudes, lighter skin would have uh, been an evolutionary advantage because it absorbs more sunlight, which produces vitamin D, and of course, that's that's important. Later, when farming crops began to replace hunter-gatherer lifestyles, communities ate less meat, a dietary source of vitamin D, paler skin would have conferred an even greater advantage and accelerated the spread of relevant genes. So they don't think it was until probably around seven or 8,000 years ago that the skin started lightening up. Oh, that is incredible. And not something that I had thought about a lot. And now I want to know everything about it. The report that over a period of 3,000 years, dark-skinned hunter-gatherers, such as uh, Adrian's ancestors, interbred with early farmers who migrated from the Middle East and carried two genes for light skin. So it was a combination of migration Mm -hmm. and environment. And a lot of his ancestors would have trekked across prehistoric landscape that stretched between England and the Danish coasts, mm-hmm. which would help explain his blue eyes. So oh. that's where that came from. Yeah, that's crazy interesting. It's not unlike my family history where we have the the Viking background. Sure. So we've got that that, you know, very, very white history. <laughs> um, and then where you can see, especially in when we've done our DNA tests and, stu- and such, uh, my ancestors traveled over to the North American uh, continent and then bred with snowmen. Um, so <laughs> we are actually the the whitest that you can get. It's I, I'm basically see-through. <laughs> I'm going to show you the comparison picture between the two right there. Oh, my gosh. With the exception of the skin color, there would be no question that that, that would that's a close ancestor. But it just really goes to show you that really we're, we're all the same inside. Even like the shape of his his cheeks and yeah. down into his mouth shape. That is remarkable. I mean, look at the eyes and the nose. I know. And the way that, that their mouth is formed. It, the whole it's the same guy. It's the same guy. <laughs> different hair. Well, yeah, because Cheddar Man had a mullet. He does have a mullet. Very 1980s Jethro. Let's not go there. That's the shocking recent development just within the past year yeah. that that uh, Cheddar Man had much darker skin than, than they had thought. Sure. They thought he had white skin. And so this article came out in The Independent, and I'm going to quote this. The discovery that uh, this cave dweller from 10,000 years ago was black, meaning that British cavemen were black, will cause a huge amount of office work because British racists will have to rewrite their leaflets and redesign their websites and start shouting, quote, this country should be for British people with pure British blood for the true black race and not these white immigrants who came over here diluting our British genes. Groups with names like, quote, the British White Glory Smack You Right Up Alliance, who pride themselves on maintaining ancient British traditions such as assembling in a group of 25 and yelling between gulps of cider in a car park in Lutton, will have to retrain their members. (laughs) 
Now they'll have to scream into a camera, quote, this used to be a country for the British race who go right back to the start of Britain. Now it's full of whites trying to destroy our Britishness and we've had enough. <laughs> I love it when people take a an opportunity to use science to go, screw you, racists. <laughs> <laughs> So there's the story of Cheddar Man. I love it. This story really, I, for some reason, just really... Sings a song to your heart? It just... I want to say I connect to it, but I, I, I can't say that because I don't have a connection to it. But I think it's about connections that, that really turn me on about this because we're all the same. We all are part of the same family. If you go back far enough, you know, and, and to be able to demonstrate a connection of 10,000 years from a man who's living today to a skeleton that they found in a cave is remarkable. It really is. And it does help kind of break down any sort of ability to separate. You can't. You can't. No, we're all people. So be kind to each other. A message from Jethro for Kindness. Cat treasurer. You know I'd be the treasurer because I would be pinning dollar bills to the inside of my nightie. I'm going to go through your lingerie drawer now. I know you do when I'm not home. I just (laughs) like to rinse out your delicates and try them on. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course not. Stretch them out, though. Theboxofoddities.com, our website where you can buy your tickets to the February 27th live show for The Box of Oddities, our very first live show. Uh, at Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville. Oh, you can also get your merch there. And you can also get your merch there. TheBoxOfOddities.com Well, that's it for us. Uh, Box of Oddities twice a week. We'll see you on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.